On the 20th of December 2018, my heart stopped working. At about 2pm, I picked up some washing to take upstairs to dry and I collapsed on the kitchen floor. 36 hours later, I was having emergency surgery to repair my heart, which was completely blocked. I want to reassure you that despite these quite dramatic events, I am very much alive. And as I record this episode almost three months later, I feel very, very well. I'm told I should expect to become a very old woman. So this isn't a sad tale, but it is a life-changing one. I wanted to talk to you about what I learned in those 36 hours, mostly about the nature of fear and how I'm making sense of it all now. Welcome to Courage and Spice, the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'm your host, Sass Petherick, and I'm so glad to be back in your ear holes. Before we jump right into the episode, I just wanted to send a huge and heartfelt thank you to everyone listening in. This is episode 37, and there has now been well over 100,000 downloads of Courage and Spice. It's a total joy to know that these conversations are being received by you, that they're helpful, that you keep on tuning in. Like most aspects of my work, the podcast began as an idea, an experiment. I tend to pilot most things and just see what happens and then keep iterating and evolving as I go. I imagine that for most of you listening in, you too have an idea for something you want to bring into the world. Maybe you're waiting for something, for certainty, for it to feel right, perhaps for it to feel perfect, or for you to feel competent. Maybe you're waiting for a sign from the universe. Well, if so, this season of the podcast is just for you. I'm going to be talking to folks who have taken a dream they had and are making it happen. I hope their stories inspire you to take the next smallest, most doable step. Because there are no overnight successes, there's no magic wands, and no one can do this for us. The best part is that when you accept the invitation from your dream winking at you, inviting you to follow that windy old breadcrumb trail, that's when you figure out what you're capable of. That's when you allow yourself to be stretched and to grow. It's on the way that you figure it all out. But I know for a lot of us navigating through self-doubt, it's the things we are fearful of, the things we're most afraid of happening, what our self-doubt is trying to protect us from, that we often work really hard to avoid. I've learned that fear is a really curious beast when it is the only natural emotion to feel. It's weighted with power. And when there's nowhere to hide from it, no distraction, no way to not be in it, I've learned how to name it, to breathe it in, to notice how pure and true it is, to just be with it, to not run from it. And so I have this new perspective, a growing understanding of fear, and I thought this would be helpful to share. Perhaps this will help you to get curious about your own fears and how you can begin to reduce the hold fear has on you and your dreams and without having to go through a near-death experience. So let me tell you what happened. I inherited my heart condition from my mum who died at the age of 53 around 17 years ago. 
I had open heart surgery when I was four years old to repair a hole in my heart. And I have other complications that have always been present, but the potential surgery to repair them was deemed riskier than the very limited side effects I've experienced for most of my 46 years. Towards the end of last year, I could feel myself getting more and more fatigued. I was feeling just really knackered, low energy, not quite myself. And I knew something was probably quite wrong, but honestly, I just wanted to enjoy our first proper Christmas in our new house. So I kind of put it on the back burner. I had been to my GP and she had confirmed that my symptoms were worth investigating and had booked me in for some tests in January. So I knew I was going to eventually look at this. But on the Thursday before Christmas, I hadn't slept very well. I kept waking myself up because my breathing was so laboured. And that afternoon, I grabbed some washing out of the machine to take upstairs. And the next thing I knew, I was coming around on the floor in the kitchen. Bodie, our little dog, was licking my hand and he was whining. He was quite anxious. And all I could see were dust bunnies underneath the cabinet in the kitchen. It took me about 10 minutes or so to register what had happened, to realise that I'd passed out. I felt about 86 years old. I had no energy, even just to sit up properly. And I was quite afraid of what was happening. I'd never collapsed before. I managed to make my way to the kitchen table where my phone was, and I sent a message to my good friend Gemma, just saying, hey, this has happened, and I'm really scared, and I don't know what to do. Luckily, and she said this later, she was having lunch with a friend, just knew something was really wrong and left immediately. It's kind of amazing how sometimes our intuition just kicks in. But one of the ways I manage my self-doubt is I have a tendency to overwork. And as a consequence of this, I find it often quite difficult to ask for help. I tend to play things down. So if I hadn't been feeling so frightened, I probably would have just sat there and hoped I would feel better. But several medical people have said that asking for help so quickly really did save my life because my heart had actually stopped working. Gemma arrived in about 10 minutes, swooping like a bird over our back fence because she knows I never lock the patio doors. She doesn't live very far from me and she had called an ambulance on the way. So she just kept talking to me, kept me awake, and when the ambulance came, she was able to give the paramedic all the information they needed. They were just so kind. That was the thing that moved me so much. It still does. Just how unfailingly kind everyone in the NHS was. He took some preliminary tests, asked questions, and as soon as he measured my heart rate on that little ECG machine, he said, well, we need to admit you straight away. So within around half an hour, I was on my way to Southmead, a big public hospital here in Bristol. I was taken to the emergency room and surrounded by a team of people as they admitted me, asking questions so everyone could know my condition. The presence of everyone in that team was just incredible. They were so focused. I could feel their quiet concern. Um, they were just so incredibly there. I stayed in A&E for many hours being monitored. My heart rate was very, very low, barely making 30 beats a minute. And then it would be peppered with really high palpitations up into the high 180s. 
And this meant they were very careful about medicating me. I had cannulas in both hands and I was attached to an ECG. Alarms kept going off. I had a nurse in my room at all times. I lost consciousness a couple of times and came to with a masked doctor standing with defibrillation paddles over me. I have this vague memory that I thought I might be in an episode of Grey's Anatomy that I didn't remember auditioning for, so I was probably medicated at some point. There was a lot of urgency, a sense of being surrounded by tons of movement and barely controlled panic. But that was all happening outside of me. Inside of me, I had a couple of things going on. I was quite preoccupied with the idea that this might not really be happening. I felt quite removed from the whole thing, as if I was watching it but not really part of it. Which I thought was really interesting because I know that when I do feel fear, like quite acute fear, I'm really in it. It's a very somatic experience for me. My body reacts. I can usually feel a ball in the pit of my belly. My hands get really hot. My arms often feel like they want to spread out. I guess that's the kind of preparation to fight or flight. But before something has happened, when I'm feeling the fear, it's a very bodily experience. But in that hospital bed, I actually felt very separate. It was almost as if I was protecting myself from what was happening by not letting myself get too involved. It was a sort of disassociation that was really quite curious. Alongside this, I had moments of pure white rage. I was really, really angry. Um, I had a long, angry conversation in my head with God. I was very determined to make sure that God knew it was not my time. And I was yelling things in my head like, you know, don't you take me yet. I still have work to do. I've got a bloody book to write. I have these people that I want to help and we've not even started renovating our house. I haven't finished the book I'm reading. I can't leave my family. This is not my time. I also had moments of realizing how easy it is to die. I felt myself slipping away on two occasions and it really was just the simplest thing. It wasn't dramatic or painful. It was quiet, incredibly ease-filled, very peaceful. There was no anger or anything really. Equally, there was no tunnel, there was no light, no bloke with a beard showing me images of my life and asking me to explain myself. The closest I've been able to come to explaining that sensation was that it, it felt like dissolving. As things progressed, I was admitted to the cardiac care unit at Southmead into a mixed gender ward. So it was me and three very old, very sick men. And the whole ward was just full of machines going ping and lots of alarms. I hardly slept at all. And I overheard most of the conversations with the other patients and medical staff. They were in there with diabetes and strokes and multiple heart attacks, really complex, difficult needs. Ash called it the last Christmas ward, which was both hilarious and sobering to realise that this was where I would be spending the night. After a pretty sleepless night, uh, by morning I had sort of stabilised. 
Ash had gone home and ransacked our loft to find my medical records, which I thought we'd lost when we moved house. Somewhat synchronistically, the last thing mum had sent me before she died was all of my medical records. She wanted me to have them in the UK, just in case. So Ash found them and brought them in, and the consultant at Southmead was reading the typed letters from the surgeon of my first operation in 1976 in New Zealand. It was this very surreal moment of time and space losing all its structure. But it turned out to be incredibly helpful to have this context. And honestly, Ash was a total hero throughout this whole experience. He just really had my back. So within a few hours, I was being transferred to the Bristol Heart Institute. On the last Friday before Christmas on Bristol Roads, I can highly recommend travelling by ambulance. It was very fast, and if you can have two paramedics singing jingle bells, just remembering the kindness and levity that complete strangers offered during such a traumatic time just makes me want to cry with gratitude. So I find myself in this incredible purpose-built heart treatment and research facility with two senior consultants who happen to be world-leading experts and they're there on their last day in the office before Christmas. Stuart, a heart geneticist and Ed, a specialist in heart pacing, were at my bedside with an ultrasound, uh, having read all my notes and asked lots of questions. And Ed was very clear that I was in complete heart block and what I needed was a Rolls-Royce pacemaker called an ICD, an implantable cardioverter defibrillator. Here in the UK, the NHS is free at the point of need. It is, though, not often quick, so we usually have to wait for operations. There's often a waiting list. Ash was quite quick to ask how long I would have to wait and what we do in the meantime. But they said, uh, I can't go home without this, and so we'll do the operation here and hopefully today. And in the end, Ed stayed much later than his shift to do the surgery himself later that evening. So the ICD is this small device that sits inside my chest wall and is connected to my heart. And it monitors and regulates and responds to my heart rhythm to keep me at a consistent pace. And in the event of another heart incident, it has a built-in defibrillator that will shock me back to the land of the living. So there's no danger of me needing to wait for help. Because of my weak heart, I was awake for the procedure, which was terrifying. I felt really anxious. It's quite a simple operation, and it's amazing to me that this incredibly complex problem that I've lived with for four decades could be resolved in just a few hours. But it wasn't pleasant. There was some pain and discomfort. The shortest day did end up being the longest day. But when I returned to the bay in the ward, I was kind of mesmerized just watching the monitor showing my heart beat steadily for the first time in my life. And just a few hours later in the morning, my 18-month-old cough had stopped. And I've had cold feet for as long as I can remember. But now that my heart was fully working, uh, my feet were warm. So the physical healing was pretty immediate. 
I feel better than I have in a long time. But it's the experiences of the fear that have taught me some really interesting things. It's been the psychological healing that has really surprised me. One of the biggest shifts happened when Ed looked me in the eyes and said, I know your mum died of something related to this, but that isn't going to happen to you. This is a known and a complete fix. So mum, as I said earlier, died almost 17 years ago of a similar condition and she was in her early 50s. So for most of my adult life, I've believed that I would follow a similar path. I've probably been counting down since I turned 43. That fear of dying young, which is based on some pretty sound reasoned experience, has probably been driving me for most of my adult life. And for him to say that is not going to happen, Ed's words were, you get a different story, which I thought was incredibly poetic for a heart guy. Um, But for someone to say that to me was probably the most life-changing aspect of this whole thing. I can trust that I don't just have five years left. All going well and climate crisis aside, I probably have more like 50 years. So that fear has now gone. There is no basis for it. And I can't tell you how freeing that is. And also how almost agoraphobic it feels to have all of this unexpected life ahead of me. I've been telling myself this story that it was inevitable that I had around about five years left, which explains a lot of why my doubt and worry was about how much I can pack in, all of that overworking. But that has turned out to not be true. So I've been thinking a lot over the last few months about what else I tell myself. What else do I say or believe that I have no way of knowing if it's true or not? What limitations do I place on my capabilities about what's possible for me? What assumptions am I making about other people? What do I believe that I've just never questioned? So one of the things I find really hard to do is ask for help. I believe that... This will be a burden for other people, inconvenient, a pain, or they won't do it right. Perhaps I'll look weak or like I don't have all my shit together. And all I did for six weeks after I was in hospital was ask for help because I wasn't able to be unsupervised. I couldn't drive. So I had to ask for practical assistance, for time, for special dispensation. And I found that all of my asks were received with so much love that the people who care about me are actually only too happy to help. And also to make jokes when it is a bit inconvenient, to tell me to relax and stop apologizing, to allay my awkwardness. So rather than separating us, which was my big fear, it brought us closer. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Those stories where we fear what might happen. We make up a story often based on good evidence. Usually the outcome has happened before. We know that there are people who can't love us with our conditions, that there are places and spaces where we might not feel welcome or safe. We don't usually just make this stuff up without some indication of it being a real risk. 
but we can start to believe that the story is the truth rather than an assumption we're making up or a past experience that we believe applies to every context and every person. So I think the real lesson that has come from this new information about a quite existential fear is the realisation that fear is always mistimed. It's either based on past experience or it's anticipating what might happen. But neither contexts are our actual current lived experience. When I had to face my fear to actually breathe it in and be in it, it wasn't fear that came up for me. There was anger, disassociation and a weird sense of peace. Often we make a lot of decisions based on how fear makes us feel. But that means we're protecting ourselves from something that has either already happened or may never happen. So fear is always mistimed. It's either based on past experience or it's anticipating something that might not happen. So how do we move past this theoretical idea of fear and what it may or may not be about? Well, I think one of the ways to really get a grip on this is to experiment with trying new things and gathering new information to update our assumptions, to see if they are outdated or inherited or just context-specific. In the self-belief map, we spend quite a lot of time experimenting in self-belief in a really supported way. But I think you can just do this for yourself. Maybe you could choose something that you know is an old belief that has a lot of fear attached to it. And just seek out ways where you can test the validity of the fear. And the purpose of this is to gather new evidence to see if your fears are useful. Then you can decide if you want to respond differently to your fear. So just to demonstrate how this might work, For example, if you had a belief that I have nothing interesting to say, you might find that this is attached to the fear that if you do share what you think, there is a risk of criticism or being misunderstood, uh, even rejected. Maybe you'll find that people think you are quite boring. right? So we want to test this belief and we want to check in to see if this fear is valid. So you could spend a week just getting super curious about what does interest you. Every small thing that catches your eye. What is it that actually fascinates you? What interests you? And just start sharing the things that you find interesting. See what happens. See how it feels. Notice any changes in the kinds of conversations you have or who you end up talking to. What's that like? And then you can update your belief system. Is it actually true that I need to be uh, fearful of being criticized, being misunderstood, rejected, or being found to be boring? Is my belief true that I have nothing interesting to say? So figure out the belief and what is the fear that this belief holds for you? If it comes true, what will happen? And just experiment in your everyday life to test the validity of that fear. Gather new evidence. Decide if that belief is always true. 
This can be really simple. You may just want to revisit your self-doubt archetype and see what beliefs really resonate with you. What is the form of your fear? It's not going to be amorphous. It's quite usually quite specific. Um, so get curious about that. And just try experiments out in safe environments, in low-risk contexts. So for something like if, if saying no or being criticized is a big thing for you, a really cool little experiment is to go to a cafe and order a hot drink exactly how you like it. Ask for the specific milk you like at a specific temperature. Would you prefer cream? Let yourself be really fussy. Invite in criticism or judgment or awkwardness in this really low-risk way and just see what happens. Right? Because the point is that if we can't ask for what we want in these low-risk places, it's almost too big a leap to expect yourself to ask for your needs to be met in your marriage, for example, or to hold strong, healthy boundaries in your online interactions. So always start really small. It might be that your fears are based on assumptions that have never been tested, are just out of date, inherited from someone else, or just not as worrisome as predicted. And this idea can hold a ton of possibility for you. What I'm finding is that life is quite different on the other side of a big fear. The most noticeable shifts I'm aware of um, is the quality of my presence. I'm finding it's just easier to be here, now, with you with this one specific task. My mind is not darting off to what might happen or what you might think. There is a different quality to being with what is when fear isn't really here. It's not that I'm super positive all the time. <laughs> the bargain that I struck with God to keep me alive and I'll do the fun run has sadly not come to fruition. But in lots of ways, that feels kind of perfect because, let's face it, I was never a fun runner. I don't like running. I don't want to. So from the outside, life is ticking over as usual with a new pink scar. But on the inside, it does feel like something momentous has moved. So over the next 10 or so episodes of season four, I'll be talking with folks who have decided that the fear is worth it <laughs> and they are still working with the dreams that they want to bring to life and they're doing it imperfectly they are not spectacularly different people to you or I um, but what they are doing I think is quite rare in that they are not following a script or a well-worn path and that means that life is a daily practice of being with both courage and fear I'm really excited to bring these stories to you and I hope they help you. You can find the show notes for this episode at sasspetherick.com backslash podcast and you can rate, review and subscribe to Courage and Spice, the podcast for humans with self-doubt, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.